You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, Midtown Lexington. If you've got a Bible, you can grab that and go ahead and flip open to Psalm 50. We will bounce around through a bunch of texts this morning, but that'll kind of be our anchor. Uh, like Clash said, my name is John Ludovina. I'm one of our downtown pastors, and I've been around since just about the beginning of Midtown, which is about 13 years now. Uh, for the last year, I've been in a new role as our pastor of family discipleship, which means I oversee our kid town and our student ministry and our Milestones family discipleship program. So I hope some of you were able to make it out to Milestones weekend, the conference we had back in May uh, for 2019, and we're just going to try to keep building on that foundation uh, heading into Milestones weekend for 2020, uh, but also really building Milestones out into a yearly parenting training program. And it's not just for parents, it's for anyone who has a vested interest in discipling kids, helping them grow, uh, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus. Uh, I, I do not submit to fear about this culture being the worst culture ever for our kids. Every culture the gospel has ever gone into has faced challenges and God has never struggled to overcome those challenges. And I'm going to raise, I'm going to do everything in my power to see our kids and our teenagers love Jesus so much that they're not afraid of the culture. They go shine like lights in the darkness. And I want to see uh, lots of their friends come to know Jesus because they're not, they're not living by that fear. And so that's a lot of what we're doing with our parents. And I hope that that would be just encouraging for you. Uh, it's a really fun job for me because my wife Erica and I have five kids age 7 to 15. There they are. Uh, so we, uh, we adopted some of them and did kind of cuts in the parenting line and now I've got a teenage daughter who's about to get like a permit and start learning how to drive. And I don't like any of that. I do not like it at all. I do submit to fear when it comes to her driving. It's just not the discipleship stuff. Um, and I just want to let y'all know, y'all have a great uh, Kid Town director out here, Hannah Disbro. I enjoy so much. Yeah, give it up for Hannah. I really enjoy working with her. Uh, we, we have monthly sync-up meetings now as well. Uh, Jacob Kirby, who is up here, your st uh, director of students, uh, he's great. And uh, what? yeah, yeah, he's awesome. And I don't know if you know this or not, but he's invited uh, all of the Lexington students as well as about 30 of our downtown students to come out to his parents' lake house in a couple weeks on Wednesday, August 14th. So uh, I hope your students can join us for that. I'll be out there, and I, I'm just loving getting to disciple middle school and high school students and all of it. So I'll pray, and then we'll dive in uh, to the Word and what we're talking about today. God, thank you so much for this morning, for this church. God, thank you for how you are growing your kingdom here in Lexington, South Carolina. God, thank you that you are not afraid of the darkness, of anything going on around us in any cultural era or moment, that uh, you are confident that uh, who you are and the offer you have of life with you by grace alone, by faith alone, is the best offer that we will ever receive in life. And God, I pray that this little family, this community of your believers will be a bright, shining light of what life looks like under your good rule and reign. And even, no matter what's going on around us in terms of how uh, culturally tolerable following you is, uh, I pray that the testimony of this community and these individuals would be that you are 
life abundant and that life with you is the sweetest, richest, deepest life possible, regardless of circumstances. And I pray that everything I say this morning, that you'd speak through it and that you would help encourage us more and more in that direction. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, before I tell you the specific attribute of God that we're discussing this morning, I want to set us up like this. Uh, There's an unpleasant part of life that we don't tend to talk about very much. We all deal with it at different times and different moments, but it's pretty vulnerable, and it can be pretty difficult to verbalize the feeling. And I'm talking about the parts of life when we feel powerless, when we feel powerless. So for me, one of my first memories of this is actually a relatively positive memory. When I was a young child, uh, if if you haven't met Frank Ludovina, my dad, he is a relatively large man. He makes me feel small. And when I was a kid, that was, you know, even more so. And my dad loved to tickle me. And being a very large man, uh, whether he wanted to pick me up over his head and tickle me or pin me down to the ground and tickle me, when Frank Ludovina wanted to tickle me, there was nothing I could do to stop it. Not at all. I was powerless. I couldn't make it stop. And my dad loved to tickle me right up until that point. You know the point I'm talking about? That point where all the joy of playing with dad, roughhousing, turns into sheer panic. Dad, stop. Please, Dad, this is about to be embarrassing for one of us, maybe both. In a much more serious way, this sense of being powerless happens when we want to change parts of our character or behavior, but we just can't seem to make it happen. So throughout large parts of my life, I felt pretty powerless in my relationship with food. Doesn't matter how much effort I put forth, what diets I try, even if I gain traction for a while and it's going really well, it never seems to stick. Uh, This is why AA and every 12-step program I know of starts with the same first step. We admitted we were powerless over blank, that our lives had become unmanageable. What's really interesting is that step is very important because it's incredibly difficult to admit I'm powerless over this area of my life. Ironically, it's incredibly powerful to admit it. It's the first step in the process of seeing real change come. We experience the same powerlessness when a loved one gets really sick, when your parent or a close friend or your child is in really bad shape, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. It's awful. It's awful. Now, one of my worst moments of powerlessness was later when I was in college, and I found out that my dad, Frank, was cheating on my mom and eventually decided to leave her. And I couldn't do anything to make it stop. I, I tried. I yelled at him. I pleaded with him. Now, I actually daydreamed about beating him. Like, maybe a beating would get his attention. But the truth is, nothing I could do could change him. And so what did I do next? After I'd tried everything I could do, I started to pray. And I prayed my guts out. I cried out to God, God, would you do something to change my dad? You can make him repent. Just force him to. Yeah. Uh, There's an interesting thing about feeling powerlessness. We often start to pray almost no matter who we are. So even uh, devout atheists at times get to a moment where they have no strength to make something happen and they just instinctively start to think, maybe I'll pray. 
You haven't prayed in years, haven't gone to church in forever. I don't think I should pray about this one. And then we start praying and we start to barter. God, I'll, uh, I'll give up smoking and swearing in front of the kids. And I'll, I'll do anything, God. Drastic measures. I'll do anything. And we, we, we make these bartering offers because the truth is we can't do anything. There's nothing we can do. And so the point when all of this is I could go on and on with this list. I could talk about when your kids just won't stop screaming at 3 a.m. and you can't make it stop. I could talk about watching your spouse choose self-destructive behavior and nothing you can do can make them change. I could talk about getting passed up for promotions at work that you absolutely factually deserve. I could talk about government abuses and social injustices that don't seem to change no matter how much good effort gets put forward. The list could go on forever, but the point of the list is this. This idea of powerlessness, these moments of panic when there's nothing we can do to improve or change or redeem a situation. God has never experienced that, ever. That's the point. And that's what we're focusing on today. Psalm 50, starting in verse 1. It says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. I want to focus on that first little phrase there, the mighty one. It's the Hebrew word El. It's the simplest Hebrew word for God. It, it, it just straightforward means mighty, great, powerful. But here in Psalm 50 verse 1, it's doubled. So the psalm starts, El, El. It calls God mighty, mighty. I like that. You should teach your kids that one of God's names is mighty, mighty. Like Frank Ludovino when I was six years old. God is exponential scales more mighty than us. He can flip our world upside down with ease, which I actually think is one of kids' favorite things about their dads or their parents is that ability to just spin their world around. That through a kid, dad is invincible. He's mighty, mighty. And it brings great comfort to a kid to know my dad is strong. My dad is mighty. He can flip me over and throw me in the air. And for us, it should give us great comfort to know that our, our heavenly father is strong. He is mighty. There's, a, there's actually a specific name for God, which is El Shaddai. El Shaddai uh, is God's name that means the almighty but because El means mighty, once again, it's technically mighty almighty. You should teach your kids that one too. El Shaddai should give us great comfort because our heavenly father is strong. He's mighty. The theological term for this attribute is God's omnipotence, which means simply God is all-powerful. Sometimes it helps me to remember which one this is because it's all, omni is all potent, all potent. Omnipotence is all potent, like a drug's potency. The stronger a drug's potency is, that means the more powerful it is to accomplish the therapeutic effect. God is all potent. He lacks no ability to accomplish anything, which means God has never thought to himself, oh, I can't do this. He's never had that moment of, ah, I can't get this stripped screw out of the wall. Ah, I can't Think of the right words to help her understand what I'm trying to say right now. He's never had gone, ah, Abraham, can you open this jar for me? It's never happened for God. 
God has never thought, oh, no, I can't. Never. Of, of all of the things God has chosen to do or not do in all eternity, inability was never a deciding factor, which means God makes decisions in a very different way than we do because inability is always a factor for us. I love how the psalm continues with what mighty, mighty God does. The mighty one speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. This refers to both God's creation of the earth by his spoken word and his sustaining of the world every day from morning to night, from the glorious pastel colors that leak out into the gray dawn to the setting of the orange ball of gas we call the sun that makes clouds sparkle pink and purple and orange. God does it all just by speaking. He does not break a sweat to create or to sustain. He summons existence to keep on existing by the power of his word. Now, as a pastor who preaches sometimes, this is really encouraging to me because my hope every time I preach is that stuff inside of you would change, that life and light would break forth in your soul, but I can't do it. God can. By the power of his word, he's sustaining all of existence every single day day. Verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So the Jewish people the psalm was written to saw Zion, Jerusalem, as the center of all creation and God's home. So it's saying out of the center of creation, God Almighty shines. His power to create his artistic brilliance. So think about vast landscapes, right? Like the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, like those moments where it just takes your breath away, it makes you feel really small, just by showing us the smallest little peak, the smallest snapshot of God's power. Verse three, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire around him a mighty tempest. So not only according to the psalmist is God able to do anything, but he does actually do stuff. He does not sit back passive and silent. No, he moves. And when he moves, it's like a forest fire or a mighty Tempest. That word tempest refers to a massive ocean storm where the waves are so tall that they're tossing around ships like ping pong balls. It's a powerful sea storm. And why did the psalmist choose those two artistic images? Because when God moves, stuff changes. Man, you let a, you let a wildfire go and it rewrites the entire landscape. Nothing stands in its way. You, you watch a mighty tempest go in the ocean, the most seasoned sailors, you know what they do? They avoid it. They go around. They don't go through because that thing changes everything. It reminds me of Mark 4 when Jesus in, is in the boat with his disciples when, as the, Mark writes, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat and the disciples are in a panic and they're running to find Jesus. Even though many of them started their professional careers as fishermen and sailors, their family are fishermen and sailors, they've grown up on boats, but they're panicking because this storm is a mighty windstorm. It's a tempest and they go find Jesus napping. And they wake him up, Jesus, we're going to perish. And he wakes up, walks out on the deck, says, stop. 
and it stops. And it's this picture of unbelievable power. And he's so powerful, he's unconcerned. The mighty tempests that rock our world are like a white noise machine to Jesus. They help him nap. It's incredible power. And so I love all the different ways the Bible speaks about God's omnipotence. I'll just sum up a few and camp on a couple of them. Number one, we see God's omnipotence in how he creates. We see God's omnipotence in how he creates. So this is the point of Genesis 1, and it gets pointed back to over and over and over again. The, the theologians would tell us that God creates ex nihilo, which is a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. So for any of you creative types in the room, you know that we are limited in our creative ability based on our source material, based on raw materials, based on our ideas and inspiration. God is not limited by any of those things. He makes out of nothing, with no limitations whatsoever. It's incredibly powerful. He has never said, I, I can't think of the creative solution to this problem. He, he has all of the inspiration from within himself to make everything. We see God's omnipotence in how he creates, but I think even more powerful for me in the day-to-day -day is to see God's omnipotence in how he sustains I love this aspect of it. I don't think it gets enough airplay. God doesn't ju just create. He sustains what he makes, all of it. This is Isaiah 42, 5. It says, God gives breath to every living thing. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 17. In Jesus, all things hold together. So what those verses are telling us is that the universe falls apart if Jesus doesn't actively sustain it. Uh, our, our students down, downtown have been studying the book of John this summer. In John 5, 17, Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I am working. The picture is that God didn't stop his work in creation after Genesis 1 and 2. No, he continues to work sustaining it. African church father St. Augustine commented on this verse, and he said, God works constantly so that all created things would perish if his working were withdrawn. In the everyday of our normal lives, God is working to give us breath, to hold us together, to keep everything moving forward. Now, uh, this is particularly interesting to me, scientifically speaking. I, probably most of y'all don't know, but back in college, uh, I thought I was going to be a science teacher. I was going to be a chemistry teacher at the high school level, uh, or maybe go back to school and become a chemistry professor. And if I could, take us all back to eighth grade science for a moment, which I know some of you will really enjoy and some of you won't, but I have the microphone. So uh, here we go. This is scientifically interesting because of atoms. You know atoms, right? Basic building block of all matter. Look, there's a picture. That's, it's an old picture. We have better ones, but this one is enough. It's eighth grade science, Okay. South Carolina public education. It's, this is what you get. It's a joke. I love education. Okay. Um, at the center of every atom is what you would call the nucleus, which is made up of neutrons and protons. And I know you all rem remember this, but I just want to remind you, uh, neutrons have no electromagnetic charge, as you all know. You mean, you've heard the joke, a neutron walks into a bar, and the bartender says there's no charge. All right? But protons, <laughs> protons are positively charged. I would have been a good eighth grade chemistry teacher. Okay, <laughs> protons are positively charged, 
which means according to the electromagnetic force, all the protons in the nucleus should repel from each other rapidly, just like putting two same charged ends of a magnet together. You know how that repels? That's what should be happening inside every nucleus, but they don't. And very smart physicists explain that they don't fly apart because of the strong nuclear force, which is also just known as the strong force. And as you may have guessed, it is very strong. It is roughly 100 times stronger than the electromagnetic force. So it's able to overcome the electromagnetic force and keep the nucleus together, which is incredible. We absolutely know the strong force is there. We can measure it. We can observe it. Uh, In fact, one of our downtown members, Nick Tyler, is studying this in his PhD program. He's a nuclear physicist, which does translate to he's smarter than me. And I talked to him about this before I preached the sermon, and we were talking through that while we can observe, measure, describe some of how the strong force works, scientifically speaking, we cannot explain why it is there. And actually, you know, one of the things Nick said was that most scientists would tell you they're not even super concerned with the why question. All they're really trying to do is explain how and what. And I don't think that's a problem. Please don't mishear me in any of this. I am not doing that science versus religion nonsense game. I love to see how science and theology actually fit together to point us to the same truth, which is that the strong force and all of the fundamental forces in the universe, we can't actually explain while they're there, but the scriptures explain it really well, that in Jesus, all things hold together. Now, I know some of you don't care about that. I love that stuff, man. It helps me worship to see how, as, uh, as Kepler once said, that all of science is just thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what it is. Science is beautiful. We should pursue it at high levels. It fits together and helps us understand exactly who God is. God creates and sustains. We also see God's omnipotence in how he is autonomous, how he is absolutely unruled and supreme. This may be the single most powerful and haunting verse on God's omnipotence in the entire scriptures. It's Psalm 135, verse 6. It says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. What that verse says is, God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with no hesitation, no insecurities, no second guessing, which I will say once again, means God makes decisions very differently than we do. Yes? And where does he do this? It says in heaven, on earth, in the ocean depths, which I just love to think about because in all the deeps of the sea, those are places we know almost nothing about. Places where even with our best scientific technological advancements, if we try to go to them, we and the equipment get crushed, but God's there running stuff. You go out into space, the deepest depths of space that our most powerful telescopes can see, we know almost nothing about the depths of space. God is there running stuff, powerfully autonomous, everywhere, doing whatever he wants. Lastly, we see God's omnipotence and how he is self-sufficient. And this is probably my favorite aspect of God's omnipotence that I love to think about. God is entirely self-sustaining. He provides everything that he needs for himself from within himself without any need for help ever. 
My favorite verse on this is actually back where we started in Psalm 50. If you're still there, skip down to verse 12, but it'll be on the screen as well. Psalm 50, verse 12. This is God speaking, and he says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. See, I love the places in the scripture where God gets a little sassy with us. And he just said, hey, if I ever got hungry, which he never does, but if he ever did, he wouldn't ask you. He wouldn't say, hey, can you make me a sandwich? It wouldn't be big enough. (laughs) We don't have the resources we need to make a God-sized sandwich. And he doesn't need one anyway. He's self-sufficient from within himself, which means you and I have absolutely nothing to offer him or bargain with. It means it's impossible to get leverage over God because he doesn't need anything. He has everything that he could ever need within himself. Here's another way that Jesus says it in, in the book of John, John 5, 26. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. They're totally self-sufficient. Everything required for life lives within God which is just beautiful to think about because if you think about the contrast, think about how needy you and I are every single day of our lives. Think about everything you need right now to survive. You need air to breathe. You need to not get hit by a car on your way home today or lightning. You need for all of your systems and organs to keep functioning properly. You need food Right, without food, I think you die in about a week. You need water. Without water, you die in a couple days. God doesn't relate to any of that. He has everything he needs within himself. And I love to think about that. Um, some of you may know if, if we've caught up, but last summer I was on a, a we're starting to do these preventative uh, sabbaticals for our pastors. And last summer I was on sabbatical. And, and upon re-entry back into work and back into pastoring, something just broke. And I don't know what exactly, but uh, my anxiety, my depression just shot off the charts. I had what I don't think these are like the best terms that we use uh, culturally anymore, but I don't know a better term than emotional mental breakdown of sorts. It was a really rough season. And um, my counselor and I have talked about it a lot. And we don't fully understand exactly why it happened. But at least part of the reason was that somewhere during my sabbatical, I started believing the subconscious idea that Midtown had been so gracious to me in giving me three months off to rest and to spend time with my family that when I came back, oh, it was on me. I I owed Midtown, and I needed to fix what? I don't know, everything, anything? Like It was just like this subconscious, ridiculous idea of pressure that was big enough to crush me. Um, So going back all the way to where we started, now the problem is that when we are obviously powerless, when your kid is really sick, when your company or your marriage is falling apart, when your spouse is leaving you because your addiction has so taken over your life that they don't know what to do anymore, when the mental breakdown is happening, it gets a little bit easier to admit, I'm I'm powerless over this tempest. I can't handle this storm right now. It gets a little bit easier. 
But the problem is that in the midst of our daily normal lives, for most of us, we believe almost constantly that we are actually quite powerful and that we are fine on our own. We feel fairly self-sufficient from day to day. Like we are the ones holding our lives and our little universes together. We, we become incredibly numb, comfortably numb to how, God, how dependent we are on God's power and his provision in our daily lives to sustain us. And the reality of God's omnipotence is wonderfully, radically confrontational good news for us. Because you are not self-sufficient. And you are not omnipotent. And you are a finite human being with real limits. But God is limitless. This has been one of the best things for me since last fall. I have this just growing daily awareness that I'm finite. That I cannot carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. That I am capable of being crushed. But God isn't. So now when I come up on hurdles and obstacles in my daily life, and I'm not talking about huge stuff. I'm talking about the little stuff. The, I, don't, I just don't know what to do next. Man, uh, my wife just made me aware of something going on with one of the kids, and I don't, I don't know exactly how to navigate that. Man, there's something going on at church. I've got a pastoral care situation, and oof, this one looks like it's going to go bad and there's nothing I can do about it. Just the little normal day-to-day work, family, personal problems that I'm dealing with, I'm trying to make that a, a little warning bell in my heart that all of those little problems aren't just problems, they're actually promptings. That in every one of those, there's an invitation and a calling to run to God who is omnipotent, who is never out of ideas, never out of strength, never unable to do what needs to be done. And my, uh, my friends and my family and my wife and my counselor, one of my favorite things that I'm thankful for about them now is that uh, they remind me of my limits, oftentimes just by simply laughing at me. Not like in a mean way, but out of love. Oh, buddy, you think you're running all that on your own, huh? You're going to want to calm down and give that to somebody else. They remind me of my limits, and they remind me that God is limitless. And, and maybe one way that I could sum all that up, I think my counselor probably said this at one point, but when I start feeling shaky, I have people in my, lives, in my life who remain unshaken, and even more important, I have people in my life who point me to God who is never shaken. So I just want us to land here in Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, now the author of Hebrews has been kind of unpacking this complicated analogy describing how God dealt with the nation of Israel powerfully through Mount Sinai by giving Moses the law. But now for us as Christians, he's dealt with us powerfully through a new mountain, Mount Zion, where, where Jesus went to the cross. And so there's this This complicated analogy, but the therefore really simply just means in light of the cross. In light of what God has done for us on the cross, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That is beautiful. 
because of the cross of Jesus, because mighty, mighty, mighty almighty himself, self-sustaining God poured himself out, poured his power out on the cross because Jesus did for us what we are unable to do because he took on to himself the weight of the law and God's demand for perfect obedience. We can now be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's awesome. I am so shakable, but God is utterly unshaken. God's kingdom will never falter, never fail, never lack any strength I need from day to day, any strength we need as a community. So the only thing left for us to do, according to this verse, is to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, the exact same picture that the psalmist used in Psalm 50. Acceptable worship is a lot more than just singing. It's our whole lives offered to God, who, who we cannot barter with, but he's given us everything, and he requires of, of us that we offer our lives as living uh, sacrifices. Uh, but it's not less than singing. It's not less than awe-filled, reverent praise. To stand small in front of God who is the largest natural landscape you could ever look out on. To see how mighty almighty shines forth in his omnipotence. To stand before him humbly and say, you are worthy. And you didn't use your power to crush me like a bug, which is what I deserved. Instead, you poured out your wrath on your son to powerfully invite me into your kingdom. Who is like you? Who am I that you would treat a lowly, sinful human like me like this? And so as we transition into a time of singing, and then as we leave this morning, I just want to give us two little encouragements uh, for us to meditate on in light of God's omnipotence. Number one, God is never annoyed with you when you need help. Now, some of you in this room, man, you are so, you're wired just like me to think, God really doesn't want to hear me ask him for help about this again. Like, I should be past this by now. And that little tempting lie sneaks in all the time. God has all of the power forever. He is never annoyed. When my kids need help, I am never annoyed when they come ask me. I'm thrilled because that means they know their, their dad is good and he loves them and he's way stronger than them and he can make stuff happen. God is never annoyed when, like, loving kids, we run to him and say, I need help. Not I need a new car necessarily, but I need actual help for growth, to see your kingdom come, to see you move in my neighbor's life, my mom's life, my whatever. God's never annoyed. And number two is almost the equal and opposite. God cannot be bartered with. As we humbly go to God asking for help, you better humble yourself and get rid of that silly idea that your good behavior somehow is twisting his arm to make you do what, he, what you want. He's autonomous. He's going to do whatever he wants. So we go to him trusting and we go to him begging, but we know that he remains good whether he listens to our ideas or not. And we go to him humbly knowing that we don't have anything to hold over his head. It's, uh, it's like my kids sometimes know that I don't have the healthiest relationship with food. So when they really want something, They'll, they'll be like, hey, Dad, I have this candy. I have, do you want some of these M&Ms? <laughs> and the funny thing about that is uh, verbatim or not verbatim, I'll just look back at them and say, I bought all of the M&Ms. 
I, w I can buy infinite M&Ms compared to what you have. You, I, need, I need no M&Ms from you. <laughs> You've got nothing. I will, I will devote my entire next month's salary to purchasing M&Ms and eating them in front of you one by one, and you can't have any just to spite you and help you. Just kidding. I would never do that. I love my kids, and I think that's a good place to end. We'll pray right there. <laughs> Uh, God, thank you so much that you have everything and you have no need of anything from us, and yet you have not used your power to crush us, to reject us. You instead have used your power to sacrifice in our place, to pay for our sin, to crush sin and your enemies in such a powerful way that it should make us stand in awe and thankfulness, and that we should offer our whole lives and our songs of praise in reverent, awe-filled worship. And I pray that we would do that this morning, in these next few minutes, but more importantly, that we would do that uh, throughout this week and throughout our lives. And God, I pray that the result of us walking in a daily awareness of our own finiteness, our own limitations, our own powerlessness would be uh, that, that more and more you shape us to be a powerful community, a signpost of who you are and how good life is under your good rule and reign. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.